Well, good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to Matthew 13? And uh, as you go there, I um, just want to piggyback on uh, what Pastor Jonathan said so well. Um, yeah, our hearts are grieving, and we have such a vibrant First Nations community here in Chilliwack, and just want to be uh, good neighbors who listen and love well and uh, pray for their uh, healing and for hope uh, for them. And uh, that we would find uh, ways to sensitively come alongside and be a part of reconciliation. Um, I, I believe that preaching is a prophetic work, uh, that the, God speaks through the preaching of the word all the time. Uh, when my uh, friend Ezra preached uh, from this stage on Friday uh, to record for our online service, I sat in on that and I would say that that was particularly prophetic. So this, the sermon series, Shaped by the Gospel, is gonna, it's gonna be real. <laughs> going to get real. And uh, um, I think it's really important. And I'm not even as concerned about you listening to some of my future sermons in it as much as I am. Please listen to Ezra's sermon from the Lord. We planned this months ago in, in God's providence. It's a really timely message on, on something that matters a great deal in our moment. Uh, everybody know what a parable is? A parable is a story about a simple, common subject that illustrates a deeper, valuable, moral lesson. Jesus told many parables, and over the next five weeks, we're going to share five of them with you. Uh, I wonder if anyone here has heard of the Oak Island Money Pit. Anybody? Anybody heard of Oak Island Money Pit? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, well, this is probably the most excavated site that has still failed to deliver up its treasure, and it's in Canada. Oak Island is approximately 100, 140 acres in size and located just off the southeast coast of Nova Scotia. Uh, the story has been embellished and distorted over the years, but here are the basic facts. In 1795, Daniel McGuinness, who was 16 at the time, and a friend noticed this circular depression as if a pit had been dug and then filled in again. And so believing something of value may have been buried there, they dug to a depth of nine meters. Initially, they discovered a layer of flagstones followed by traces of pickaxes on the rocks. Some stories say they found platforms of logs approximately every three meters, uh, but they failed to find anything of value. Uh, but the story spread and was quickly linked to the missing treasure of Captain Kidd and even the notorious Blackbeard Edward Thatch, right? These pirates believed that they stashed their treasure here back in the 1700s. Uh, over the following centuries, the pit has been excavated many times. It has not been an easy task, and the pit is claimed to be booby-trapped and has regularly flooded. Well, the most tantalizing clue found so far was a code inscription on a flat stone, which when translated, apparently stated, 40 feet below, 2 million pounds lie buried. The deepest excavations reached 72 meters, and over the years, at least six people have died trying to find whatever is buried on Oak Island. The History Channel has a long-running reality show called The Curse of Oak Island. I mean, searching for buried treasure is the stuff of legends, right? Have any of you ever come across a treasure of some kind, something uh, really significant? Um, I was talking to uh, someone after the last service, and they were talking about how they were in France and doing this work project at this old 1600s chateau, and they were, building, they were digging a trench and literally came across a safe buried in the ground, all rusted out. They were all excited about this. They opened it up, and it had nothing in it. 
But man, that feeling, hey? Wow. Well, Jesus actually tells a parable about a, missing, uh, about a hidden treasure, and I want you to pick it up here in Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 44. It's actually two quick parables in three verses. Here they are. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, that first parable might sound a little silly to us. Really? A guy just finds a treasure buried in a field? Come on. Uh, but like uh, this young woman in France years ago, or, um, it's possible. Not only that, in the ancient world, of course, they didn't have safety deposit boxes and they didn't have um, well-protected uh, banks. And so they would bury their most precious possessions. I remember coming across uh, a very special treasure as a kid the first time I discovered my dad's Gordie Howe hockey carts. I'm a big hockey fan, and, I, and my dad's a big hockey fan, and I could tell these were very precious to him because he kept them in a box he had never shown me before, and inside were these like old cards that were very special and in very good condition. I think within minutes, I proceeded to accidentally bend the corners of these cards that he had uh, you know, meticulously cared for for years, and that was actually the last time I spoke with my father. No, that's not true. But I remember how significant that was. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, coming across something uh, profoundly uh, valuable. Uh, these two men, uh, really, we see a pattern in this text, these two parables, and here's what they both did. First, they recognized the value of what they found. Second, they were determined to have it. Third, they sold everything they had to make the purchase. And fourth, they acquired the treasure. Let's look through those one at a time. Here's the first. They recognized the value of what they found. Now, the two men in the parables, I read them quickly, and they sound really similar, right? One's a treasure buried, and one's a pearl in a market kind of a thing, right? But there's one significant contrast. Here it is. The merchant had been searching faithfully, looking for the pearl. The man who found the hidden treasure wasn't searching for it, was actually surprised to come across it. And so although they came across these treasures in different ways, one searching it out and one coming across it by accident, they both recognized the value of what they found. That's how it is with salvation, isn't it? I don't, I don't know all of your salvation stories, I know some of them, but we've all heard stories of people coming to faith and, and they kind of go in one of two ways. One of them is, I, I knew there was a God. I looked at the world and, and, and knew that there must be a God who made it, or I was told about God, and then I discovered him for myself. There's that story, but there's also the story of like, I was not looking for God at all. I wasn't pursuing God. I was doing my own thing, and God came along and stopped me in my tracks. We've heard both of those coming to faith stories. Well, we see them both in the parables as well. They came up across the treasure in different ways, but when they saw it, they recognized its value. Now listen, Eddie here, uh, on his way home, took, you took the bicycle, right, to church, you and one of your sons. They're riding home, and he looks over in a ditch, and he sees like just the edge of what looks like a treasure chest. He can tell it's, it's that kind of a thing. It's coming out of the ditch, and he looks at it. He gets off his bike, takes enough time to stop, get out of the bike, and kind of analyze this thing a little bit, maybe kick it a couple times, and then he thinks, ah, and he gets back on his bike, and they start riding. If his son has been watching closely at what's going on, the next words out of his mouth will be, Dad, are you crazy? 
What are you doing? We gotta get this thing out. We gotta open this thing up. You must recognize how valuable this is. Every one of us would think he was nuts if he just got back on his bike without opening this chest. Treasure is valuable. The very definition of treasure is something of great value. But that's what many of us do when we hear the gospel, isn't it? See, the gospel is the treasure in this parable. The gospel is the good news of salvation found in Jesus alone. And the two men in the parable recognize the value of what they found. But many people come across the treasure of the gospel and they simply walk away, not recognizing that it's the very thing that will take them from spiritual poverty to spiritual riches. So first point asked in a question form, really simple. Do you recognize the infinite worth of Jesus? Do you recognize the infinite worth of Jesus? These two men in the parables did. Here's the second thing we see. They were determined to have it. Let's go back to the text. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. The second man, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now again, these two men come across their treasure in different ways, but responded in all the same ways. One, they recognized the value of the treasure, and two, they were determined to have it. Let's imagine another scenario here. I'll leave Eddie, I'll leave you out of it this time, but let's just imagine here. Let's just imagine there's a man and he sees the value of the discovery he's made. He gets, this time he gets that it's truly valuable, okay? But after reflecting on it, decides that it would be too much trouble to acquire the treasure. He thinks to himself, I'd have to adjust my priorities. I've got plans today. I'd have to break those plans. I'd have to alter my life. I'd have to sell all my stuff, change my lifestyle. It would take time and effort. My family and friends might misunderstand what I'm up to. It would make me rich, he recognizes and thinks to himself, but it would be too much of a hassle. See, the treasure and pearl are the gospel, right? And there are many who recognize its beauty and worth but don't commit to receive it. It's not the desire of their hearts that they must have. But if you, like these two men in the parable, are determined to have the treasure that is Jesus, the price is only that you will come to God in God's way. You must be willing to trust in Christ alone for salvation. And if you will come that way, turning from your sin to Jesus, then the treasure is yours. Are you the one standing in the field without wavering, knowing in your heart that you'd give everything in order to receive Christ's riches? So the second point asked in the form of a question, are you determined to have Jesus? Are you determined to have him? Let's keep moving. Here's the third. They sold everything they had to make the purchase. Back to the text. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. The second man, when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So one, having recognized the value of what they found, and two, having been determined to have it, next they sell everything they have to make the purchase. Now, Jesus actually talks a lot about money in the Gospels. He says some very pointed things about money. He even talks about the difficulty of the wealthy entering the kingdom. But even, um, as the, even though the parable says he sold all that he had to buy the treasure and pearl, money is not ultimately the issue here. 
It's included, but it's it's bigger than that. It's, It's a picture of renouncing everything that might be a hindrance to attaining the great prize, money and possessions included. But it's, it's a picture of getting rid of everything that stands in the way of receiving it. The treasure is so amazing. It's so much better than anything and everything else. Why would we hold on to lesser things that jeopardize and divide our attention? That's the point. C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century Christian thinker, is often quoted by preachers. But there's even one or two of his uh, statements that are particularly quoted, and this is one of them. It's from The Weight of Glory when C.S. Lewis wrote. It it paints such a vivid picture. He wrote, we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And here's the picture he paints. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, he said. Now in a room like this, there will be some of us who are actually wavering on these last couple of points, right? Not determined to have the gospel because it will actually change everything. And you're, you're actually living in such a way that you've settled for making mud pies in a slum because it's easy, it's, it's comfortable, it's familiar, it doesn't cost you anything, right? We're clinging, some of us, to idols in our lives. Now, when we think of idols and idolatry, we, our minds often go to... Um, the Old Testament, where, where people would literally worship graven images, and we think, that's crazy. We would never do that. Well, Timothy Keller is probably uh, the, the person who's, who's spoken most profoundly about idolatry in the 21st century, and he refers to idolatry as meaning uh, turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. It's an allegiance issue. Does Jesus have that superior place in your life, or is there something about it above it? Because if there's something above Jesus in your life, functionally, that's what you will worship. You will worship that thing rather than the creator. And this can work in a bunch of different categories. For example, it can be in the realm of status, power, influence, popularity, significance. We can actually be chasing that, being attentive to that more than anything else in the world. It can be money or the stuff that money can buy or or the significance and worth that that having money can bring. It can be putting uh, that not on Jesus but on another person, a significant other, a partner, a lover. It can be on uh, your kids and, and, and that your life revolves not just around them in a healthy way but in a way that is your ultimate identifier. I am the success of them and nothing more. When you think of your identity, what are you most wrapped up with? Being a disciple of Jesus or being comfortable or safe or wealthy or the kindest person that everybody knows or the funniest person that everybody knows or super mom or the most well-respected businessman in town. Look, if that thing, that identity piece is anything other than Jesus, it's an idol. If these are things that you are pursuing most in your life right now and that doesn't change, I promise you, you will try and you will try and you will try to make these things fulfill you and give you your worth. But the comfort and happiness and euphoria they bring are fleeting. Let me illustrate that this way. I'm a bit of a researcher, right? If there's a a, a large purchase that needs to be made in the Shant's home, I like to research that. 
in what some would consider an annoyingly long amount of time. Uh, and I think God in his divine comedy uh, had me marry a wife who, who is much more comfortable making impulsive purchases. And so just for fun, right, because that's usually how marriages work is we really, we, we come at these types of things very differently. Like if we're going to buy a sofa, I'd like to get the measuring tape out and just have an idea of that it'll fit in the room that it's going to go in and stuff like that, just right. Or if we're getting a TV, I just want to check the specs, you know, check those out and how it might look on the mantle or the latest Apple gadget or a vehicle. All these things, I, I study them. But something I recognize about myself is in that process, I kind of get obsessed with this. It becomes my obsession. And getting the right one is really important. And I actually kind of subliminally believe, this is going to revolutionize my life. This is actually going to change my life. This is going to bring me to the promised land. This is my salvation. The, the proper fitting sectional in my living room. The weird thing is, though, right, is you, you eventually get that sofa and you are kind of euphoric about it for a little bit. You're like, this is perfect. And we're going to use it to glorify God. We're going to be the best host. You know, you just start to do all this weird stuff. <laughs> oh my goodness, this is amazing. This is the best. This is exactly what we've been looking for for so long. And of course, I've researched for so long that it's like, I'm really excited about it because man, that paid off, right? But then after like not even very long, you're like, oh, wait a minute. You still just sit on this like you sit on other couches. Oh my gosh, you still kind of just use it to sit. Like you, you check out the TV and you're like, it's three inches larger and I'm told that it's a sharper picture, but it still plays all the same shows, you know? You realize that pretty quick? It felt amazing to get this thing and really quickly. Like, it's a bit of a silly illustration, but honestly, that's what idolatry does. Sometimes the euphoria lasts a bit longer, sometimes it's really short, but if it's anything other than Jesus, it will always fail you. Only Jesus is the treasure our souls were built to worship, love, and adore, and that will infinitely and eternally satisfy us. What are your idols? What are the things that you are satisfied with keeping instead of going all in for Jesus? To put it in a C.S. Lewisian way, what are your mud pies? What's holding you back from following after Jesus wholeheartedly? Because the gospel really is such a great treasure that to choose anything else above it is to be satisfied making mud pies in a slum when the offer of a holiday at the sea has been given to you. Third point asked in the form of a question, do you desire Jesus more than anything else? Here's the last one. Fourth, they acquired the treasure. So the men recognize the value of the treasure. They're both determined to have it. They sell everything to attain it. And lastly, they receive it. This is critical. They acquire the very thing their desire had been set upon. Listen, salvation doesn't just consist of seeing that Jesus is valuable. It stresses that Jesus must actually become ours by faith. We must obtain it. Now, maybe this is helpful to you, but there are, there are three elements to faith. Uh, one of them is the intellectual element. So we can understand that Jesus died in my place. My sin 
for his righteousness. He died so I could live. We, we need to, we must intellectually grasp that Jesus did those things and understand the basics of the gospel. Really important, but that's simply one part of faith. It's the intellectual element. Another part is the emotional element or the heart element where we find ourselves being drawn to the gospel. We get it intellectually, but we're being now wooed by Jesus. Our, our hearts are becoming warmed to him. It's that, that, that's a really important element as well, the heart element of our faith. And the third is the volitional element or the will. This is the acquiring of the treasure. Faith becoming my own. How is it acquired? Actually making a commitment to follow Jesus. Actually making a commitment to follow Jesus. Not just hanging around Christians, not just attending Christian things, committing to Christ, meaning that salvation is an individual matter. So catch this, the Christian life is a corporate matter. We're a part of the Christian community and we need one another, but salvation is a commitment that must be made as individuals. So kids in the room, your parents can't work out your salvation for you. You must come to Jesus. Adults in the room, your Bible teacher cannot do this for you. You must turn to Christ. You need Jesus and you need to give your life to him. I wish we had more time for this, but, but I, I can guess that some of you might actually be thinking underneath, following, tracking with this parable, wait a minute, what if I renounce everything else for Jesus and one day I find myself disappointed? What if it's not a good deal and I've given up everything for it? And like I said, I wish we had more time to interact with that. But simply put, you will not find yourself coming back with your treasure or pearl hoping to get your property back. You will not do it. Will there be hard days? Sure, yes. I feel like we've been living in about 400 of them. There will be hard days, but you will never regret fully, fully surrendering your life to the Lordship of Christ. How can it be a bad deal when what you get is salvation? How can it be a bad deal when, when what you get is God's own son? So the fourth and final question, have you trusted in Christ for salvation? I want to invite you to do that. Um, and if you have your communion elements, I, I invite you to take them out now and get started on the tabs because they are tricky, especially that second one. Uh, and just hold on to the bread slash styrofoam for a few moments here, okay? Um, I, I just want to interact with this text a little bit more by jumping to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 where it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Here's what that's saying. Jesus, though fully God, left the heights and riches of heaven in order to redeem us. He became poor so we could become rich. He became poor for our sake. And so listen to this. In that sense, Jesus is the man in the parable. The world is the field. And you are the hidden treasure. In that sense, Jesus is the merchant pursuing fine pearls and you are the pearl of great price. 
How much did Jesus spend to have you? Everything. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross for you and for me. Listen, all morning I've been talking about Jesus and the gospel as the treasure, and he is. Let this blow your mind, but you are his treasure as well. How much does he love you? Enough to die for you, to come and save you, be your rescuer. You are his treasure. Jesus loves you so much that he gave up everything to have you. And if you believe that, that's what this represents. And if you've trusted in Christ years ago, months ago, or today for the first time, if you believe that Jesus is the treasure and that he treasures you, I invite you to take this and to eat. And take the cup as well. And if you believe that Jesus shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sins and to show you your value toward him, I invite you to drink in great gratitude for his grace. Oh, Jesus. It really does start there, doesn't it? It starts with us recognizing how deeply you love us. Flawed and sinful that we are, you came to remedy all of that. And you lay it all down so that we could be yours. Jesus, I pray that that would profoundly impact our lives. Recognizing that you are the supreme treasure, the the treasure of infinite worth. And that we would spend our lives most notably living for you and your glory. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.